Welcome to On Stage, Off Stage, the show for, of, and about theater and the good folks who toil away unceasingly to bring it to you. My name is George Sapio, and we are broadcasting on WRFI 88.1 FM in Ithaca, 91.9 FM Watkins Glen, and 89.9 FM in Odessa. Radio for the people and by the people, broadcasting independent and locally produced programs. Welcome back to On Stage, Off Stage. I'm your host, George Sapio. This week, we will be giving you a full reading of a 10-minute play given at the Wolf's Mouth Theater Company presentation at last May's Spring Rights Festival in Ithaca, New York. The play is called Up Late. The author is Ross Harstadt. Immediately following the performance, we're going to have a short interview with the playwright. And so without any further ado, we present to you Up Late by Ross Harstadt. The cast, Frank, middle-aged, played by Dave Dietrich, Carolyn, about Frank's age, played by Judith Andrew, and Bobby, their son, a teenager, played by Kai Haskins. Stage directions will be read by the playwright. Up Late, a play by Ross Harstad. The characters, Frank, middle-aged, read by David Dietrich, Carolyn, about her husband Frank's age, read by Judith Andrew, Bobby, their teenage son, read by Kai Haskins. Setting. A dining room table with three chairs is night. There's a lamp on the table which creates a pool of light amid the dark. A purse lies atop the table, some items spilling out, including a hairbrush. There's a bottle of bourbon, an ice bucket with some ice, and glasses. Carolyn is knitting a very long, multicolored scarf. As he speaks, Frank pours himself a drink. And this tree, it's tall. It just dwarfs the house. It's very tall, and it's leaning, leaning forward, and the wind is picking up. Leaves are flicking through the air. It must be autumn. There's a tricycle dropped on its side, with one wheel spinning. It's something else. I think it's a bow and arrow set. You know, with those rubber cups on the end, a toy set. And there's this red mitten next to the trike. And I recognize it. I mean, the tree. It's that oak that grew beside our house. The one on the north side before here. The tree is bending in the wind, teetering really. And something's moving in the branches, flickering. Flickering. Light, dark, light, dark. It's that rope swing we had, all zigzagging. Then the tree starts to fall, but it's all very slow, like the tree is pushing against something, something other than air, some kind of fluid, you know, so it has to fall very slowly. The tree is falling. I'm running to the tree, and now the grass is grabbing at my ankles. The swing falling so slow, and that's when I wake up, I guess. I mean, I'm all sweating and trying to catch my breath. Every night, that's right where I wake up. But I don't think that's really true. There's something else in the dream, something I've forgotten, something just before the waking up. And I know, I know that it's that part, the part I don't remember, that's the part the dream is about. Frank takes a sip of his drink. Carolyn continues to knit. 
And how are you sleeping? Carolyn? Hmm? How's your sleep? How's... No. Huh? I'm not sleeping. Can't. Frank takes a sip. Go back to bed, Frank. You need your sleep. You needn't wait on me. Frank hesitates. Then he takes a half-empty bottle and exits. Carolyn continues knitting. You can come out now. Bobby enters. He's slightly dressed in winter clothes with an old red scarf around his neck. His feet are bare. Could you move the light closer? <sighs> Bobby looks to where Frank exited. Isn't he up kind of late? Carolyn knits. <clears throat> Bobby wanders about. You too. Me? Up late. Hmm. I suppose you like the quietness. <laughs> Where's your shoes? Outside. I didn't want to track in any mud. Not when you've waxed. Aren't you cold? Yes. Yes, that's a bit drafty. Catch your death. Couldn't find my slippers. So, is he angry? I don't know. Maybe. Yes. It wasn't about him. You know, not everything's about him. Maybe I should talk to him. Carolyn finishes her knitting. No. No, Bobby, don't. Not yet. Let him just be for a while. Are you sure? It's too soon. Too... He wasn't expecting... Are you angry? No. Not at you. Not tonight. Not tonight, honey. It's just... I mean, oh, you're here, you're here, and that's good. You're really here with me now. You're here with me, here. Bobby begins to brush Carolyn's hair. Hush, little baby, don't say a word. He continues brushing. Mom is gonna buy you a mockingbird. If that mockingbird don't sing. Mom is gonna buy you a diamond ring. Now, Bobby gently helps a sleepy Carolyn to her feet while he turns off the lamp. They begin to exit. And if that diamond ring turns brass, Bobby's gonna buy you a Later, 4 a.m., dark, a vague hint of pre-dawn light from a window somewhere. Frank enters with his bottle. Bobby! Come on, Bobby, you can't hide from me. <laughs> it's safe, your mother's going to bed. Bobby turns on the lamp. He is sitting at the table. Maybe we should tell her, you know? Not yet. You know she'd want to know. No, it's too soon. She'd be mad. No, Bobby, you're wrong. She'd want to know you're here. I know her. He starts off to fetch Carolyn. She can hardly sleep since... Papa! We agreed, Papa. Bobby starts up to go out. 
We made a pact. Wait, wait a minute, damn it. Okay, okay, whatever you say, just... Don't leave, son, don't. Is that bourbon? JV. <laughs> Frank pours out two drinks and drops in some ice. They sit at the table drinking for a while. It's nearly dawn. Remember this? Hmm? Early mornings, October. Mom's still in bed, but she'll have packed with a huge lunch. Filled a couple of thermoses. Uh, how old were you? The first time? Yeah, the first time I took you. Deer, right? No, duck. Duck? You sure? Yeah, I remember freezing my ass off in the water, just standing there, out to my shins in ice water and my shiny new waders. I was 12. Guess you couldn't wait, huh? Nope. Never could. Hey, Pa, we could head out right now. What? No, no. Past season, ain't it? I think... God, I've been so confused lately. Stuff with time, day, night, the month, for Christ's sake. Been having bad dreams. Yeah, well, guess not. Too bad. Hey, what about we shoot some targets out back? Well, suppose so. Yeah, we could certainly do that. I'll just collect the guns. You better go get some boots on. Meet you out back, son. Bobby stays put a few moments, then quietly exits. Hey, Bobby, it's the damnedest thing. The gun cabinet ain't here. I mean, I don't remember moving it. I swear I must be having some damn senior moment here. Frank re-enters. Bobby? Now, where did he... As he heads off stage. Bobby? Son? Bobby? Time passes. The dining room becomes filled with sunlight. Then it grows dark. Bobby and Carolyn are dancing upstage, barely lit. They dance to the lilting melody of Hush, Little Baby. As the music stops, Bobby escorts Carolyn to the table and seats her, and she begins to nod off. Bobby removes his red scarf. He picks up the scarf that Carolyn knitted and wraps it around himself. Then he places his red scarf gently around his mother's neck. Bobby exits. Frank enters and sits at his place at the table. The tree had fallen completely. And time must have jumped. Years. Because the trunk had begun to rot. There were a lot more trees now, and the wind was something fierce. It began to snow. Not much at first, you know, that kind of pissant snow that isn't sure it's even winter yet. The tree trunk was wet, black with wetness. And then the snow came so serious, wet, messy, thick, everything going white and black in this forest of half-dead trees. The trike must have been covered by it and the bow and arrow. But I could still see that red mitten. I thought I heard a branch snap loud, so I turned around to look. But the snow was filling my face and I couldn't see a damn thing filling my face and freezing against my beard, real stiff. I turned my head to get it out of the wind, and I saw I was wrong. It wasn't a mitten, after all. It was a scarf, frozen red scarf. I guess it was dawn or dusk, because now I could see a trail of red spots on the snow. And if that mockingbird don't sing, Mom is gonna buy you 
went up the hill, up and up. And that was where he was, black and red and frozen, almost covered with the new white snow. And the funny thing was, he didn't have his boots on, our Bobby. No boots or even socks. End of play. And that was Up Late by playwright Ross Harstadt. That was presented at the Wolf's Mouth Theatre Company 10-Minute Play Festival, performed for the annual Spring Rights Festival in Ithaca, New York, on May 4th, 2013. Good to have Ross in the studio. How are you, Ross? I'm a little nervous, actually. Why, because you're on the radio? No, because I'm going to talk about myself as a writer. Oh, well, there we go. <laughs> See, all right, folks, for those of you who know Ross, you might not know him as a writer, and certainly I know Ross in many other hats as uh, producer, actor, uh, director, lighting technician. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, Ross, this, this, this is one of the uh, lights that Ross keeps under a, a bushel, so we're going we're gonna to pull up the bushel and actually... Where did this play come from? The play? Yeah. Um... Well, the impetus for the subject was there were two teenagers in Ithaca that um, both died by shooting. Um, I don't know if I want to be more specific, because people get different ideas about what happens to Bobby in this play. Right. And I like that. Um, but the fact that they were shooting deaths and that with this whole gun debate going on, um, it's been on my mind for two years just very visceral so it's always a teenage boy because of that and then I'm like well how do we deal those of us left behind so the play's of course really about the two parents and how they're working it out or not working it out um, then technically uh, well you know Wolf's Mouth is a wonderful group and that it kind of encourages you every few weeks to do some writing and um, I mainly sat have sat in the group being a director and, uh, and someone that is more like a dramaturg doing critiques and helping people shape their work by how I respond to it, which I've done a lot. I, I did that for The Hanger for like four or five seasons under Kevin Moriarty for each new play, and I've um, helped other people with their um, shaping their plays. But Because um, well, I know from working with you on a couple of different projects, mm -hmm. I mean, especially American Buffalo, that... Yeah. Once it comes down to actually examining the play, dramaturging the play, um, you're excellent, and you do some exceptionally fine character work. I've written a few things. I mean, um, playwriting, I should say. I mean, I write all the time. Um, used to write a lot of poetry and some fiction, um, but mainly I've been writing uh, journalism and reviews, and uh, so people mainly know me as a writer from from theater reviews, I think. But it's sort of just a challenge to myself. I knew I wanted two things. I wanted a monologue, and because it had been a big part of our discussions in the group, I really wanted to work with subtext. And I've been like in this acting class all semester with uh, Carolyn Gelser at Cornell on Chekhov's Three Sisters. So I mean. If you want subtext, Chekhov's like the master. So absolutely, yeah. And three so that's what kind of came together. Yeah. yeah. What did, What did you get out of uh, working with uh, that particular play with three sisters? Um, oh, it was magical. Um, I mean, I got two things. One is, um, well, you know, the problem with being an actor in this town is you don't really get to work your chops a lot in a kind of 
measured, disciplined way. I mean, you can get into a production and sure, work yeah. that, but you don't get to go back to class or anything. Um, except for a very few classes in town. So that gave me a chance. I'd never gotten a chance to actually do Chekhov. And uh, the two things it gave me, I think, are, one, it was just really fun to work with students who are, like, very new and fresh to it. And, um, mm-hmm. and the second They're discovering thing, it for the first time. Oh, yeah. In fact, they hated it to start. <laughs> they wanted the <laughs> class. They loved Carolyn. So they were like, I'll take a Chekhov class because it teaches me something. It was, a re- it was basically a class about rehearsal process. Um, and then the reason for the Chekhov was he's just something you can go so many layers on as an actor. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and then, like, after we had a couple, we read Cold through um, the first two acts, and they were like, these people are boring. And by the end of the class, you know, 15 weeks later, when they're, we're doing public presentations of the, of the material, we did an abridged sort of two-hour version of it. Um, everyone was clawing into their characters and owning right. them very, very much. That's good. Yeah, it's it's because a lot of times, well, sometimes that doesn't happen. You know, right. the, the actor is forced to do more work without a lot of leadership. Right. Also, I think um, the nice thing about class structure is her whole atten- attention, even though she was, you know, in essence directing the presentation, her point of view was always the pedagogy of teaching the acting and how to work on character and bring um things to rehearsal you know okay so that you're as an actor you're bringing your own work into the rehearsal and you've worked on it outside and you have some ideas and when you say work on it what what do you mean when you say work on it thinking um, about it doing the lines trying to find working scenes with with scene partner um a lot of little we do some exercises in class and exercises out of class, like write about your experiences with fire since it's a big fire in Act Three. So it was create a workbook for your character. It was just okay. nice stuff. Anyhow, um, I guess what it means is I got myself immersed in Chekhov's scenes and not only his language but his his structure for like a, and his characters for like several weeks. So when I started writing the play, it just kind of flowed out. <laughs> let's 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 go, let's go back to something you, yes. you, you briefly touched on here a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, you remarked that when the students began to do Chekhov, they were less than thrilled with it. And I didn't uh, see anything related old. to them. I mean, they they are old. Well, they're somewhat older than them. The three sisters actually. The youngest one is a, uh, twenty years old. So right. Well, I'm, I I worry about. And yes, I know these mm-hmm. are classic plays, and I know they need to be done. And right. I know they're masterful, yes. but they're not contemporary. I agree. And getting college students to develop a taste for something that is not contemporary, that is not immediately available to their mindset, to things that they know, to to language that they're used to, to, to so pop culture. For contemporary language, or well, no, I'm not pushing for yeah. anything. I'm just wondering about: is it still worth it to? have college students work on things that are not of their particular time as opposed to finding a play that is of equal, I don't know, importance, resonance, depth, layers that mm-hmm. is appropriate for them. Wouldn't, wouldn't the access be easier for them? Well, I mean, they did, the last time she did this class, it's a sort of experiment still. She did Picnic, by, and which is you know, still 1950s, but... William Inge is a play. Um, it's hard. Well, I think it's hard to find a play with a lot of, uh, with, 
you know, a dozen characters to work with. I, I think you scale the heights when you can, in a, especially in a class situation. I mean, they're doing contemporary work all the time up there. They did two world premieres this year. So if we can't keep going back to the master or playwrights, which I don't just mean the men, what are we building on? Yeah, it was it was just a... No, it's a, it's a yeah. great question. And I think... Because um, I've, I've heard that from, oh gosh, why are they doing that again? And mm -hmm. when you come down to it and you look at plays like Three Sisters mm -hmm. uh, and you... you, you get into you know, Chekhov and Ibsen and all that sort of thing, you realize that you can't pass it up. Right. And if you're doing that at the same time going and doing totally new work that's fresh and has all its... Well, you get better lovely... access to the new work once you've right. mined the old work. Right. Right. And this is something, you know, that's proven itself over many actors, many a long time. So you get, a, I think you get a better sense of, of um, structure, possibilities, how uh, a play has texture. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of people write TV kind of drama where it's just plot point, plot point. Plot point, yeah, exactly. You know, plot driven, not character driven. Right. And, yeah, and, and Chekhov's happy resolution at the end. Yeah, and what everyone said was if they had, you know, Chekhov falls apart if you don't have your character there. True. Yeah, well, the good <laughs> plays usually do fall apart if you don't have the character. <laughs> yeah, all of them do. Really. Going back to Up Late, yes, up late. Your, your play ends talking about resolution. There really isn't a resolution to this. It it's more like a section of life. Yes, it's a slice. Yeah, that a, a lot of playwrights try and you know, with such a such a major problem going well, on here. I mean, they're in but, process of of healing. If they do, true. I think they will, but um, I'm not showing that. Out of the I'm sure it's a process. Sure. Yeah. You know, it's, it's very impossible. Um, we talked during rehearsals. I mean, I ended up directing it, which wasn't my preference. But I couldn't find a director that I felt who had the time that I felt like would do care, would take care of the characters, would take care of the acting. Um, so, in rehearsing it, we talked about how recent was this incident, mm -hmm. and uh, we decided, for our purposes, it was probably three or four months ago. Um, it could have been years ago as far as I was concerned or just happened, but it seemed like for the actors to get a nice hook on it, like, you know, they've been hanging around with Bobby's death for about... However long? Three or four months, probably. Yeah, it could have been months, could have been a couple yeah. of years. I mean, but how... just, I'm just saying for the actors, yeah. you know. So when we're talking about resolution and healing, you know, it was a good, it was a nice space for them to think... Right. And we know they're not talking to each other. They keep sitting at a table, not looking at each other. Mm -hmm. not Their minds are clearly somewhere other. else, right. which is what we're seeing in this play. Right. And the father keeps going into this dream where I really think he's going back to Bobby as, as quite younger. I mean, there's all these childhood trike and uh, mitten. And, um, and then later, when he's interacting with his Bobby, it's about being 12 and going his first times going hunting with his father. So, um, yeah, it's an, it's, it's a very, very touching play. The a, a series of moments where they're not letting go and they're connecting and, but they're not connecting with each other. It was and, nice too. Yeah. Cause, um, I think this, it was there or whatever, but it also the checkout helped, which is that dad's got the bourbon and the drink he, to try to deal with the evenings between the dreaming and, the mother's knitting this scarf, which we learned towards the end, 
is something about the fact that the kid <laughs> didn't have. I was pretty um, lightly clothed for winter. No, and he didn't have scarf. a scarf, yeah. We had his own scarf, but it was like some sort of, I mean, she's trying to somehow protect him and comfort him. Right. And then what I also love is that he, most of the time, she's being um, soothed and comforted by, by her her vision of her son. Right. So you can take it as a literal ghost. It works that way, I think. But um, I mainly well, think in rehearsing what we did as their projections of, of their Bobby. I, I, I find that, the character of the scarf, because to me, mm -hmm. the, the scarf is indeed another character. Mm -hmm. And when you experience such a tragic loss like this, you, your body hungers for some sort of way to ease this thing. And when you talk about easing things, you talk mm -hmm. about bringing comfort to the soul. Mm -hmm. And the scarf is a beautiful metaphor for bringing comfort. Yeah, it's, it's really it's, wonderful when you're yeah. writing and you just find that little piece of something. That works. Concrete. That, it's, that yeah. It's not symbol so much as it's just something that collects resonance around it. I know from watching it on stage that the, it's, the scarf became a major part of what everybody was latched onto because there's not a whole lot of action for the characters. Mm -hmm. There's more musing, there's more voice, there's more mental... Well, there's, there's two actual... Well, there's three actual exchanges. There's the brushing hair singing the lullaby. Right. Well, I mean, there's actually some kind of exchange between the characters. So that's mainly one direction. Um, then there's the scarves, which I think is the major one. But then there's also sharing, having shared drinks mm -hmm. um, right. between the son and, and yeah. the father. Ross, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. And thank you so much. Thank you. For presenting your play to uh, our audience. And I'm so glad to be able to like put it out to the airwaves. It's it was excellent. Thank you so much. And we'll see you again soon. Okay, thank you.